Good morning. Nice to see all of you. Hope you're doing well. Today we are in, I think it's week three of this series called Who Does That? Where essentially we're, we're looking at these different moments throughout the, the Bible, different moments with the great people that occasionally do weird things. And you find yourself looking going like, who, who does that? Why would you choose that? And this morning, uh, I want to share a moment where I did that. Like this whole who does this type of moment. And I'm kind of embarrassed about it, but I'm going to share it with you anywhere. anyway. So... Here we go. Uh, Seven years here. So I got hired, I want to say like 2007, something like that. And for seven years uh, here at Casas, I was the high school pastor. That's what I did. Uh, And I lived in like the youth area, the youth arena. I became very familiar with that thing. I knew it inside and out, loved students, loved volunteers and our families and all that stuff. Uh, Loved it. And then after seven years, my job shifted. It did. And suddenly I became what was called the creative programming pastor. That was my title. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, you're in good company. There's parts of it that still don't make sense to me. And I created that title. So, so welcome. But essentially what I ended up doing was I became responsible for partnering with the worship team uh, to help create the service uh, that, you know, Sunday morning services. Uh, I was on the preaching team and would, would help teach and craft sermon series and map and plan the year of how we're going to go about this. And and how that's going to look, and then also became responsible for a large events at church and environments and those things. And this, all these, you know, different types of things, and this was all at the same time where, you know, there are people in churches that have needs and wants and desires, and you pastor people. And so all of that's a part of that too. And I'm not saying this so that you would be, feel bad. Some of you have way harder jobs and way more complexity. I'm just trying to illustrate there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of moving parts to some of this because I had originally been in an area where I was the only person who was like a paid staff that was leading that thing, right? So like very, very simple, so to speak, in my head of how that thing worked. And all of a sudden I was a leader on teams of leaders amongst other teams, all trying to work together with trust and this stuff to pull the thing off. And everything got a lot more complicated at that point. Everything in that area got a lot more complicated in my job. I think some of you know what this is like. Doesn't it seem so much easier if we're really honest? Does it seem like at times it would be so much easier to do what we need to do, accomplish what we're trying to accomplish if just less people were involved? Have you ever had this thought where it's kind of like you're in a meeting, you're with family, you're doing whatever it is, and there's a lot of different people, there's a lot of moving parts, and there's a part where it's kind of like, all right, everybody, you can just leave. I'm going to do this now because this got too complicated. There were too many moving parts. There's too many things because we're all different. Each of us as human beings, each of us in this room, we have different thoughts. We have different beliefs. We have different opinions. We have different strengths. We have different weaknesses. We have different things that have shaped us in our upbringing. And we bring all of that stuff together here in this space, right? Even right now. And this happens to you all week long. Some of us have beliefs that others would look at those same beliefs and go, I don't think that's really a big deal. Others who, those same people who say, you know what, I don't really think that's a big deal. They have their own hill to die on sometimes. And I often find myself like wondering, wait, was that even a hill? I'm not quite sure because we're all just so different. There is, there's a lot of complexity when it comes to people. And at this point, I'm not just talking about ministry, am I? I'm kind of just talking about what it's like to share life with people. What it's like to work with people. This is life. How many of you work in an office or work environment, whatever your work environment looks like, where you find yourself thinking to yourself, I would be so much more successful, like my job would be great if that one person would just stop, right? I'd be able to get everything I need to done if that one person would just do their job. I'd be able to do what I need to do if that one person or that group of people would just dot, 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 insert whatever the thing is here, right? How many of you find yourselves in a, a family, your household, right? And you've had how many different systems, how many different conversations in play 
with this whole thing. And at the end of the day, what you end up figuring out is that all of this time has passed. You've had how many conversations, how many things, and on a weekly basis, you still have no idea how like dinner is getting made and how the house is getting taken care of. But somebody has to do it, and so here you go. But I have to because nobody else will, right? Dot, 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 insert your thing here. How many of you find yourself in a relationship where everything would go so much more smoothly, everything would be so much easier if they would just take your advice and do what you told them to do? That's not a real relationship, but you know what I mean, right? Like we all kind of understand there's a complexity with people, all of us as human beings, when it comes time to do something together, to, to lead together, to figure these things out. It's rarely the task that's the problem. Oftentimes it's people that seem to be complicated and it's tough. And I wonder if you know what that's like. Several years ago for me here at Casas, uh, whether it's good, bad, right, or wrong, it is honest, that is the place that I found myself in. I did, even here. I, I found myself uh, in that same space. I remember being really frustrated at that point in time, uh, starting to feel this way. And I walked in to meet with my supervisor. Uh, we had a weekly touch base. And I walk in and I meet with him and I say, you know what, here is what has been going on. Here's the thing I'm working on in this area that's not working for these reasons. Here's the thing I'm working on with this person and that's not gonna go well and here's all the reasons why that's not gonna work. And here's the reason why I'm doing this over here and this thing and why that's complicated too. And so here's all the list of the stuff. And I'm the only one who, and nobody else does, right? Like those kind of language, that kind of a thing. And my supervisor, he just looked at me He's like, Ryan, I think you need to stop trying to control everything and go get some perspective. I didn't like that, so I didn't listen, right? I didn't. That's just the honest truth. Like, I was like, cool. All right, next. Like, and I just moved on out. I, like, that hit me, and I did, I did not soak it in. Okay, good. Thank you for that. Same week, I walked into Glenn's office, and I don't know what I was doing. This is my who does that moment. I, I don't know if I was trying to get fired, if I was trying to force it. I have no clue. I walked into Glenn's office, and I go, hey, Glenn. He looks up, and he goes, hey, what's going on? And I looked at him. He's sitting at his desk, and I stand there, and I go, this whole thing is a failed endeavor. That's what I said to my boss's boss, to the senior pastor of our church. I walked in. This whole thing's a failed Who does that, right? Like, can you imagine? And Glenn smiles, and he looks up at me, and he goes, what whole thing? And then I, mo as if like I didn't get the, you know, the memo at that moment that this is not the right moment. This is not the thing I should be doing. I then explained using my arms, gesturing to everything. No, this whole thing, like everything, like as if to say all of it is a failed endeavor. And then Glenn just quietly stared up at me for a moment and I kept waiting to hear, am I fired? Like, is this it? Did I just end this whole thing? And he looked at me and he goes, Ryan, you were supposed to take a sabbatical two years ago, weren't you? And I said, yeah, but I'm working on this and nobody else cares about this. And so if I like stop doing that, so I have to stay doing this. And, and, and I've been partnering on this thing and I've been doing this thing. And so here's all the things that I'm doing. No one else cares. I'm the only one doing this. And so I can't take a sabbatical because, and he just stopped me and said, and that is exactly why you are going to take a sabbatical. And so I did. And I'm going to share more about that with you later. But right now I want to ask you, have you been there? Like, have you ever known what that's like? Have you ever found yourself in the place in your own life where you find yourself saying, I'm the only one who, nobody else, da, da, da. Well, I have to, because if I don't, then no one else. Because nobody else seems to care, and I'm the only one who gets this. Have you ever found yourself in that place? Have you ever felt that way in your job? The thing you're working on, the thing that you're trying to do, you're the only one who, and nobody else seems to get it, and your team doesn't understand, and all these other things. You ever felt that way in your home? These dishes don't put themselves away and no one else will do it, so I have to because I'm the only one who. 
in a relationship with somebody? Have you ever found yourself in this spot? I have. And to be honest, it's kind of exhausting. I think it's hard. Some of us in this space, if you're nodding your head or if you're nodding your heart, because you won't nod your head in this room this morning, you're tired, <laughs> right? It's an exhausting place to be. And I'm not saying it's good to be there. I'm not saying that it's your fault, somebody else's fault. It's just the honesty of do you know what it's like to be there? It occurs to me this morning that this particular message may not resonate with absolutely everybody in this room. There may be some people in this room who find themselves going, no, I never asked that question. I never feel that thing. And I would say that is amazing. And I mean that sincerely. That's not sarcasm. That's amazing. And I would say for the course of this morning, I believe that there's probably still something in here even for you to glean. But for those of you that know what it is to ask the question, Am I the only one who, to make this statement, no one cares but to have those feelings, get to that spot, have that tension. May this morning, may you see a path forward. May you know that you are not alone. You are in good company. In fact, some of the greatest people in the scriptures have experienced these same things. We're gonna look at one of them today. His name is Elijah. Elijah's like one of the all-time greats as far as like people we herald, right? In the Old Testament, it's like Moses and Elijah. Like those are the, like the two like pinnacle type of prophet, leader, human beings. They're amazing. Even Elijah finds himself in this exact spot. Some of these same sentiments. And we're gonna watch his journey and see how God responds. So if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. This morning, we're gonna cover a decent bit of ground here. We're gonna move through 18 and 19. Uh, like, so that's, that's a lot. I'm not gonna read all of it, uh, but just hang with me as we kind of understand where we're going. But let me give you some context. Chapter 18, when we get there, uh, what's happened at this point is you have Elijah. He is a prophet uh, of Israel. He's a really good guy. He is working really hard. He's trying to do what God wants him to do. And things have gotten to be really difficult. The, thing, the reason things have gotten to be really difficult for Elijah is because the king of Israel at that point in time is a man named Ahab. He's married to a woman named Jezebel. And this is complicated because Jezebel follows and worships the god Baal. And Baal is the, the god, of, a Canaanite god of what? Sun, the sun and fertility. And so you would try to please Baal. You'd worship him through temple prostitution, like ritualistic prostitution, through human sacrifice at various times. And if you really wanted to show Baal that you were a devoted follower and you were trying to earn his favor, you might even like self-harm and kind of massacre yourself, mutilate yourself to show how dedicated and committed you were. And this all flew in, in direct contrast to the god of the Israelites, right? The one true god. And yet, this is your king, this is your queen, and this is, you know, and so this is all getting a little bit weird. And so what happens is uh, Jezebel commands and, and Ahab issues the decree that, you know, we're gonna go hunt down all the prophets of God. And so they flee and they are persecuted and things get really hard. Baal worship becomes like a pretty dominant narrative in, in the nation of Israel. And so you've got guys like Elijah and his peers now hiding in caves, literally fleeing into the countryside, fleeing into the wilderness, hiding in caves, sustaining themselves on just bread and water because things have gotten very tough. Things have gotten very hard. This is, this is the daily life. This is the tough part. Elijah is a hunted man at this moment in time in chapter 18. And so like, you know, there's, there's a price on his head more or less. So this is not an easy time. This is not a casual moment. This is where we find ourselves. Chapter 18, Elijah's finally sick of it. He says, I've had it. And God goes to him and says, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do something. I want you to go to Ahab and assemble the people at Mount Carmel. And so Elijah goes and he, Sends a message. Hey, you've been looking for me. I'm going to show up. Mount Carmel. At the base of Mount Carmel. I want you to gather all the prophets of Baal. And I want you to gather all the people. And we're just going to do this finally. We're just going to have kind of a showdown, so to speak. We're going to face, have a face-off. And whoever's God is true is going to come true in this thing. We're going to see how this all shakes out. And this is where we find ourselves. They actually do this. They gather all the people to the base of Mount Carmel. The, the um, 
King Ahab is there. 450 prophets of Baal are there. The people are there. And Elijah shows up. We read in chapter 18, verse 21. It says, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Everyone's silent. No one knows what to say. And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, I'm the only one, am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets number 450. And he's, he's telling the people, will one of you choose something? Will you stop limping between this choice and this? Do you realize what this has cost me? I am the only one left. Look around you, there's 450 different prophets of Baal here at, this ba- at the base of this mountain. And I am the only prophet of the one true God who is left here. Do you not see how hard this is? He's had it. This is a full-on confrontation. He goes, okay, let's go to the mountain and let's do this. And he looks at the prophets of Baal. He says, I want you to set up an altar. And I'll set up an altar. And we'll both do a burnt offering, except we won't use fire. We'll each pray to our God. We'll do what we need to do. And whichever God shows up and lights the thing ablaze, we'll all know who the one true God is. Whether we end up following Baal or whether we end up following God, let's do this. So he says, you first. And the prophets of Baal, they go and they set up their altar and they, they start praying and they start doing what, you know, making offering, doing whatever it was they needed to do. And nothing happens. And Elijah doesn't look at them and go, okay, my turn. He actually, I mean, this is hostile, friends. This is, there's, he's angry, he's tense. This isn't like, he's got a lot of built up passive aggression. There's a lot here. He looks at them and with sarcasm. And by the way, the sarcasm is actually written into the Hebrew. He looks at the prophets of Baal and he says, where's Baal? Did he go on vacation and he didn't make his way back? He says that this is in the Hebrew. And this is also in the Hebrew. Is he on the toilet? Meaning, is he like somehow trapped in a bathroom someplace? Is he doing his business and he couldn't show up? It's in the Hebrew. Sarcasm, tension, frustration. You feel it? Then he goes, okay, my turn. And so he goes and he builds the altar. And he douses the whole thing in water, digs a trench around it, douses it in so much water that even the trench fills up with water. When you want to make a fire, you don't douse it in water, especially not so much that it fills a trench around the thing, but he does this. And then he prays to God and asks God to, to show up, asks God to show himself and this is what we read, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 450 prophets at that moment in time, the prophets of Baal were all put to death. As if to say once and for all, no. This is the one true God. This is who, who Israel uh, serves. This is our God. He is the Lord. And the people are all there and they're chanting. And Ahab is on board because he's watched this thing happen. And Elijah goes to Ahab in that moment and he says, and by the way, the reason this whole thing, this gathering happened is because they're in the midst of a famine, in the midst of a drought, right? And so you need to appease the gods, so to speak. You need to appease Baal to get the water. And so that's where Elijah's like, all right, let's Let's talk about this. Elijah goes to King Ahab at that moment and goes, by the way, the thing Baal never did, the rain, watch. Climb up and down that mountain seven times. And Ahab does. And sure enough, rain just begins to pour upon the land. And the drought is over. And the beginning of the end of famine. This is a huge moment. This is truly a mountaintop experience, metaphorically and literally, right? 
This is a huge deal. And Elijah is so excited. Because he's been hiding, he's been fleeing, he's been struggling, he's been working so hard. He's been dealing with people that he finds very complicated and unyielding and not willing to listen. He's been dealing with leaders. He's been fearing for his life. And now finally, it, all that work, all that hard work, all that faith, all that effort gets to pay out, right? It's all finally going to happen because the prophets of Baal, they're gone. 450 of them put to death. Ahab's with him. Everything's great. It says that the spirit of the Lord was upon Elijah. And as Ahab mounts his horse to ride back to tell the other people and his wife Jezebel, Elijah runs in front of his horse. Talk about the use of adrenaline. Right? He's like, we did it! And he just, you know, let's do this. The spirit of the Lord's on him. This is an amazing moment. His whole life, no more caves, no more hiding. It was all worth it. All that work, all that striving, all that energy. And that's what makes chapter 19, the beginning, so hard. I want you to turn there with me, if you would. And we'll start at verse one. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, meaning those prophets, by this time tomorrow. Verse three, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. I mean, this is like a drastic turn of events, isn't it? I did it, all the work, all the energy, all the effort. These people who've been limping along, they all finally proclaimed, they all declared, everybody's on page. Ahab came back, we go to relay the message. All this is gonna work out swimmingly, like finally. And then he gets one messenger from Queen Jezebel. One messenger from Jezebel, Ahab's wife. That basically says, look Ahab, I'm not happy about what just happened. In fact, whatever you just did to the prophets, the way you killed them, like that needs to happen to you by tomorrow or may it happen to me, meaning I'm absolutely serious about this. He goes from the mountaintop experience, he goes from this whole like, oh, life is going to be better, no more caves, no more anything to what? Suddenly stricken by fear, he flees and he runs. When it says that he left his servant, it means he's quit his job. He essentially said like, I'm, I'm done, I'm out. You stay here because my life is no longer what it was. I am done. You know how you know when your soul is really, really tired? You know how you know when you've been trying to manage and control so many things and you're frustrated people and outcomes and you're the only one who and all the different things? You know how you know when that's truly set in? Is when despite the moments of goodness that you encounter, despite the truth that you have just witnessed and experienced or that is in your past, is in your, your moments, all it takes is just one conversation with a metaphorical Jezebel to turn your whole world upside down. Despite all of the goodness and all that's stacked in the opposite direction, it just takes that one moment because you just don't have the energy. Because, oh, I can't deal with that anymore. I spent everything I had. It's tough. And he goes running. He is distraught, discouraged, defeated. He runs into the wilderness. And we read it, verse four. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Which is another way of saying, I've had enough. Which is another way of saying, enough is enough. All those translations work just fine here. And then he says, now, anytime you start a passage or like a command to God with the word now, things have gotten out of hand. Now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. God, I quit. I'm done. 
Enough is enough. Now kill me already. That's literally what this moment is. Then he just lays down under a tree, goes to sleep. There's a part of it that's you recognize he's really tired. Have you been there? He's frustrated. He feels like he's been striving, trying to overcome, and, and he's at wit's end. Like, have, do you know what this is like? There's something nonsensical to it, isn't there? Like, think of what Ahab's saying. There's a part of me that looks at this like a very rational person and just goes, that's a weird thing to say, Ahab, or weird thing to say, Elijah. Right? Because he looks to God and he says, just kill me. But think of this. So Elijah's doing great. He runs back in. He gets one, everything's going to be amazing. The world's different now. Like, all right. And then he gets one letter from Jezebel. I'm going to kill you. And he goes, no. And he runs away to spare his life. And then he shows up to God. And he's like, so kill me. There's a part of it where I'm like, Elijah, why'd you run all that way? You ran a whole day into the wilderness. You could have just let, let Jezebel do it. Like, if that's what you really wanted, you took the longest to get what you wanted. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. There's something nonsensical about this whole thing. I don't want to die. Lord, kill me. But that's how these moments are. It's like the world's upside down. It's like your axis is off. It's like you can't tell left from right. There's a nonsensical nature to it. It just feels like fatigue and frustration and tired. It's like a ball of energy all wrapped up together. And this is where he is. Take my life. I think I get this. Part of me looked at it and was like, that's weird. And then I had a moment a few weeks ago. I was like, oh, that's that. I asked my daughters to go in the backyard and pull weeds because that's one of the chores that they do. And they hadn't done that in quite some time. And so, you know, the world was getting out of hand back there, so to speak. So I said, hey, girls, uh, I want you to go pull weeds today. I know that's one of your chores. You haven't done this in a bit. And so they've gotten pretty big. We need to take care of that. So before you do anything else today, will you take care of that? And one of my daughters walks out, looks in the backyard and goes, I don't want to do this. And I said, I know, like that's fair, but you still need to. This is part of our whole role as a family and all of us taking care of each other and making sure this place works out, you know, all that stuff. And she's like, but I want to go play at the neighbor's house and I don't want to do this right now. And there are too many weeds and it is too impossible. And then she walks out, finds a spot of landscape rock in the sun, lays on her back and she goes, I'm just going to lay out here in the sun and die. (laughs) That escalated quickly, right? And I'm staring at my like sweet, beautiful daughter laying in this landscape rock in the sun claiming she wants to die. And I said, well, you know, you can do this as fast as you want to or as slow as you want to. I'm gonna completely leave it up to you, but you don't get to do anything else until this thing gets finished up today. So it's totally your choice, however you wanna do that. And then I don't know if this was a good dad moment, but I was walking inside and I turned back around and I said, and also, if you just lay in the sun and die, that's it. You never get to go to another friend's house again. So that doesn't seem like a good choice to get you what you want. (laughs) Let me know what you decide. And I walked away. There's a nonsensicalness to it. And yet there's my child. And truthfully, I've done this in my own life. What was I doing in Glenn's office? This whole thing's a failed endeavor. No, it's not. But you don't know up from down. You don't know left from right. It's all just kind of a storm inside of you and you're not sure what to do with it. Elijah lays down under a tree, and he says, leave me here to die. And God doesn't say, you coward, get up, right? And God doesn't say, and now let me, let me speak spiritual wisdom into your life. What happens? An angel of the Lord shows up, taps Elijah. I wonder how far away that angel of the Lord was when he tapped him, like, you know, because he's hangry. And what's he say? Arise and eat this. And that's the only conversation that happens. Elijah wakes up and he eats, and then he just sleeps again. He's fatigued, he's tired. And what happens? An angel of the Lord wakes him up again, taps him, arise and eat for you have a journey ahead of you and you need some food. And so he eats this meal. And then 40 days and 40 nights, he begins to fast and he goes to this place called Mount Horeb. And there he waits to see what God has to say about all of this. There he goes to be like, okay, 
I've arrived here. What do I need? Like, what's your message for me? What's going to happen here, God? And this is where we find uh, Elijah in verse 9 through 10. You know what's crazy is he ends right back up at another cave. (laughs) Verse 9, then he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts. I have been working. I have been trying. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, those people, right? The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, I am the only one who's left. And now they seek my life to take it away. They seek my life to take it away. This brings me to the first challenge this morning. If you know what it is to be in this place, if you know what it is to find yourself saying, nobody gets it, nobody understands, I'm so frustrated, I have to because nobody else will. I am the only one who, any of that, if you know what it is, even in the slightest, here's my challenge to you this morning. First one is this, see the people around you as your mission and not your opposition. Come to see the people around you as your mission and not your opposition. What I'm not saying by that, by the way, is see people as projects. I don't mean that at all. What I'm saying is don't see people as your enemies because each of those people are the object of your love. That's what I'm saying. They're your mission. What did Jesus say to us? Just as I loved you and have loved you and do love you, so also you love one another. And that the whole world, something about that love is so powerful that the whole world will come to know that you are my disciples. It looks like me. They will know me, see me when you what? Love one another. These people that you are frustrated about, these people that you're pointing fingers at, these people that you're saying like they're the things and they're the reason they are not your problem. They are not your enemy. They are your mission, not your opposition. And what's interesting is Elijah's a prophet of God. Elijah's whole thing is, like, in being a prophet, is to speak on behalf of God so that he can lead the people back towards God, so that he can be of service to them, so that he can love them back toward, like, this is, this is what, they, the people are his mission. And he's looking, he's going, but they, all of them, they're trying to take my life, they've stacked themselves up against me, but here's the truth. When you look back at the conversation, what was true? No, those are the same people that were just at the base of a mountain shouting no, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You got a letter. You got a messenger from Jezebel. It was one person who said, I'm, I'm gonna take your life. I'm threatening you. And you took that one person and you turned it into all the people. Because when you're tired, when your soul is exhausted, when you find yourself alone, when you have spent all your chips and when you are frustrated because you keep trying and you're the only one and you start to feel all those things, people all seem like enemies. Everybody seems like they want to take the last drop of whatever it is that you have, and so you start keeping everybody at bay. You start pushing everybody to the side. You start distancing. You start getting passive-aggressive, separating yourself. You close yourself off. People become your enemies. They become your opposition. But they're your mission. I talked to a woman a few months ago. She came to me. We were just laughing, and I said, how's, how's your job going? How's work going? And she said, you know, I'm still working at the restaurant. And I said, yeah? And how's that? And she goes, awful. And I go, yeah, tell me about that. And she said, I have this one boss. He shows up every single day. Like his sole purpose is just to make our entire lives miserable. Everything that he does is like so frustrating and I hate working there. It's making it where I never even want to go to work. I started laughing at her in that moment and that kind of caught her off guard. And she paused and was like, why are you laughing at me? And I was like, well, it's just, 
I imagined, like, let me ask you this question. And I said, I, I just went, like, just humor me. So your honest belief is that this man wakes up every day, head pops off the pillow, and he's like, oh, I'm going to cook me up some hatred today. Like, he, he, he wakes up each day, and he's like, you know, my singular goal in going to work is that everyone hates me, and so I'm going to choose to do things that make everyone's life miserable because I want to be isolated and the ultimate enemy in the workplace because that's what I'm going for. I was like, you think that's what he wants? And she laughed, and she goes, no, of course not. And then I looked at her and I said, so what does he want? And all of a sudden, we stopped joking around, and she got really serious, and she goes, well, I've never thought about that. So what do you think he wants? She said, I don't know. What if he's your mission and not your opposition? What if he's not actually your enemy? What if he has desires? What if he is a human being made in the very image of God, worthy of love and acceptance and grace, dignity, all of those things? What if he wants something else, but the narrative that you've built in your head is that this person is a villain, that this person is my enemy, that this person is, is awful, and you've so clung to that thing that your mission has become your opposition. What if there's something else there? A few weeks later, I saw her again, and I said, hey, how's work? You know, just following up on that conversation, because I remembered it. She looked at me, she goes, actually, that conversation we had was helpful. She goes, you know, I realized that the business isn't doing as well as my particular manager wanted and is, is wanting, and so he's, he's really frustrated and wanting all of us to help, and he's kind of taking some of that out on us, and he goes, and I know that's not okay, but I feel like I understand it, and he just seems really tired. I said, yeah? She goes, yeah, and you know, I've, it's not like everything's all better, but I, I don't hate going to work anymore, and I think I understand him a little bit better. That's powerful. Friends, who is there in your life that is your mission but has become your opposition? Who is there in your life that has become your enemy but they're really the object of your love? What story have you cemented in your head with what person? And now you're living that thing out on repeat because you're the only one and everybody else is against you. What would happen if you stepped back and saw it differently? Who knows what it might change? It's a really big deal. I want to read the rest of our passage here this morning. Let me summarize one part. Elijah's in this cave, right? He's up on the mountain. God asks him the question. Elijah gives him the answer that we just read. Then Elijah goes out and he climbs up to the top of the mountain and he's waiting to hear from God. And it says that a mighty wind comes through. And Elijah thinks, this is the moment, right? Powerful moment. God's going to rescue me. God's going to speak to me. But God was not in the wind. And then the rain, or an earthquake, sorry, comes through. And the ground shakes and everything else. This is the moment, but it says God was not in the earthquake. And then a fire comes, but God was not in the fire. Not like the mountaintop moment before. Not like this, this and now God's going to come in and kind of blast everything open and save the day. Not, not this loud message of, all right, Elijah, I'm going to fix all of this and I'm going to save everything. But suddenly after the fire comes a whisper. I've heard this before, that sometimes God meets you on the mountaintops and sometimes you really have to listen. I don't think this is Elijah having to lean in because he would have missed what God was saying. I think this is God meeting Elijah exactly where he was at. I think a whisper is probably all his heart could take, to be very honest with you. And once again, we find ourselves in the next section here, verse 11, excuse me. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. Oh, I already read this part. Um... Sorry. Oh, at the end of verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? God asked the same question once again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, same answer. 
I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left. They seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abimeholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God, one more time, says the exact same question. What are you doing here, Elisha? And Elijah responds with the exact same answer one more time, right? I am the only one I have been doing and working so hard, and these people have risen up, and now everyone seeks to take my life. And what does God say to him in that moment? I'm so sorry. No. What does God say to him in that moment? It's okay. You know, you're just working really hard, and, and you are the only one, and this is really tough. What's God say? I mean, all those could have been like semi-appropriate answers, it seems. Like God tells him, get up and go. And what I want you to do is I want you to go anoint the next king of Syria. It's out of the blue. And then I want you to anoint the next king of Israel. I think this is fantastic. Because what happens to us when we find ourselves being that person, where we're the only ones, our whole world, right, this great big world and this great big God shrink down into just this moment, just our problem, just the things that we're absolutely frustrated with right here. And it's as if God looks at him to say, do you realize that I am God? I get it. Ahab and Jezebel are your problem, right? King, queen of Israel, I get all of that. So go anoint a future king because I can do that because I'm God. I have this. And not just that, right? Not just your world, your people. Go to Syria and anoint the next king of Syria. Hazael just drops off the radar after this moment. Like, this is not some key character in the story. Why is this in the narrative? It's as if God's saying, I am God over Israel. I am God over the entire world, even the great big giant nation of Syria. I am God. Do you remember that? I've got this. And there are 7,000 people that you don't know about who have never bowed to bow. They've never kissed an idol. This is huge. Friends, second challenge, when you find yourself in this place, if this is you, step back and see the larger story. Step back and see the larger story. And if you can't see it, you can choose to trust it. When your world shrinks all the way down to be this size and you were the only one who, and nobody gets it but you, and I am only, it is precisely that moment with Elijah that God looks at him and says, and by the way, no, you're not. There's 7,000 other people. And the problem that's in front of you, anoint the next king and the whole world, go anoint Syria. Go anoint the king of Syria because I am God. Step back and see the larger picture. When you are trying to control everything, sometimes, and I get this too, I have been there, when you find yourself trying to control everything, when you find yourself trying to manage everything, when you find yourself saying, I am the only one and nobody but me, and this is it, and no one else cares, your whole world has shrunk to be about this big, and it's like God's not even big enough to handle that. He's handling the whole world. You are one person, and it's almost 8 billion people on this planet right now. And this one moment for you is one moment amidst all of the moments of time, all the way back and all the way forward. And this one experience is just one page in the grand story that God has been telling. In fact, it might even be just one paragraph, one sentence, one word, one letter within a single word in the grand span of time of which God is over all. 
I'm not saying this to minimize anybody. Your hurts are your hurts and they're difficult. Life can get hard and we need to address those things, face those things. I'm saying step back every now and then when your world shrinks to be this small and you become the only one and realize the world is way too big for that. And so is God. You are not the only one. 7,000 people that Elisha doesn't know about. When my daughters went out to pull weeds on that particular day, my other daughter goes out and she starts pulling weeds. I come back out a little while later to check on them. One daughter's laying in the rocks waiting to die. The other one is frantically pulling up weeds. And she looks at me and goes, Dad, I am the only one who cares and I have to pull the whole yard by myself and this is not fair and I have to do it all by myself. It's impossible. And I looked at her and I said, Whoa, I'm not asking you to pull the whole yard by yourself. I'm asking you just to do your part and your sister can do hers. I found myself thinking in that moment, as long as she is willing to pull the whole yard by herself, her sister has a great thing going, tanning in the rocks. <laughs> if you're rising to every occasion, why would somebody rise to theirs? You've already got it covered. If you're the only person and you're doing everything, then that means that there's a whole bunch of people whose jobs you are taking. There's a great big God with intentions and purposes for every single person on this planet. You just have to play your part. You know what my, neither of my kids knew? Is that before I asked them to pull the weeds, I went and I walked through the entire backyard looking for weeds that were too large for them to pull and those are the ones that I pulled myself. There were three of us in that place. My daughter had convinced herself that she was the only one. Do you know what that's like? Have you been there? Has your world shrunk down? What would happen if you step back, trusting God to be as big and as great and as mighty and powerful and all-knowing and all-seeing, encompassing from the beginning of the end of time as he actually is and you just showed up to do your part? What would change for you? It might change a lot. Which brings me to the third thing this morning. And I'm gonna acknowledge something. I think that the last thing I'm gonna share with you is fantastic news. I think it is absolutely essential to understand this about life. And I think many of you are not going to like it. I'm just gonna put that out there right now. All right, I've cleared the air. Now let me share the thing. If you know that this is you, if you find yourself in this place, my last challenge is you, is this. Accept the good news that we are all replaceable. Accept the good news that we are all replaceable. I know, it's tough. So each one of us will die. That is a given in this life, correct? Each one of us are born into this world and we will die. Which means that this world will continue spinning on long after each of us are here. Anybody who's ever quit a job knows that that thing spun on long without, after they were there. Anybody who's ever stepped out of something knows that people found some other way to do. Each of us are utterly replaceable. That does not mean that you are not valuable. The cross declares that otherwise. God so loves you that he gave his son on your behalf. Like we, you are immensely valuable, built in the image of God, worthy, loved, and accepted. But each and every one of us are replaceable. And that is good news because that means we don't have to wrestle the whole world and control every outcome. That is a beautiful thing. It is precisely in the moment where Elijah says, I am the only one, nobody but me, the entire nation, all the people, I'm the only one. It is precisely in that moment that God says, Elijah, meet Elisha, your replacement. That's a big deal. Elisha replaces Elijah, Joshua replaces Moses. Go throughout scripture, go throughout time. We are all replaceable and that is fantastic news. 
Because that means in this finite life that God has blessed us with, that each of us have been graced with a certain number of days. None of us really know. Each moment is an absolute precious gift to rise to the occasion that is your own life and ask the question, God, out of who you've made me, out of what you've put before me, and out of what is here, what will I choose? Because many of us get caught living in the have-tos. Many of us get caught, but I have to because no one else, no, that's not true, 7,000 people that you don't know about. Yeah, but if I don't, no one else will. No, if you rise to every occasion, people won't rise to theirs. You just have to trust the bigness and the grandness of God that he actually has this world, that he has your world. And out of that, you have a very powerful choice to make friends. Out of who you are, out of how he is uniquely wired and shaped to you, how will you show up to your own life? What will you choose? And that is so freeing because the other is weighty and crushing. The other is trying to carry so many lives, so many things, so many situations that you just can't do. It's so hard. I went on a sabbatical. I was gone for four weeks of that time. It took me an entire week to stop thinking about the problems I was facing at work. Entire week, entire week to stop thinking about that stuff. In week two, I actually started to enjoy the world that God made and started to enjoy the parts of me that he had created as I encountered this world and various things. Week three, I actually started to think, how does God wired me and what passions he placed within me that I would like to bring back to this place? What would that look like? What would that be? And it was towards the end of that in week four that I found myself thinking, and I actually love this church and I love these people and I love our staff and I love all of, like, I actually want good things for everybody. Nobody's my enemy. And I showed up and you can look and you can say, wow, that's all really amazing stuff to glean and to gain because of a sabbatical. That's just good stuff. The real win, the real amazing moment that I had is I got to show up to work and realize that the whole world spins on without me and everyone's just fine. And that is a precious gift. I realized that people stepped into moments that I had been trying to solve and couldn't and they actually solved them out of their own uniqueness in ways that I never thought. I realized that people partnered and did things on teams and all kinds of stuff in ways that I, I just could not see. And some of the tensions I left were there when I got back and yet there were people to love through them as opposed to a world to, world to wrestle to the ground. You have a powerful, powerful choice, friends. Will you step back and see the larger picture? Will you stop and people who have become your opposition, will you make them your mission, your object of your love again? And will you recapture that choice so that you can bring the best of who you are into whatever situation it is that's in front of you and trust God with your life, with the rest, with all that only God can do. You can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him.